with the background of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, um, and again, this is Mark D. Furtado that is uh, leading this one. We're out of the book. It's called The Biblical Theological Introduction to the Old Testament. It's one of the books that uh, Pete and PJ and uh, myself all had a to uh, participate in as a, in a class, you know, and I, I mentioned this before, I'm gonna mention it again, I'll probably do it and mention it again next week. I took the class, I've read the Bible, I haven't preached Ezra and Nehemiah yet, and I mean, I had to take tests on this book, and I'm reading this stuff, I'm reading what I underlined, and I'm going, why didn't I underline this? This is so cool. I mean, it's just amazing how you go back and you study it, you just see things you missed the first time through, and so, some of that is what you're getting today, in the, 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 the bigger picture. So with the background, until 1448, the Hebrew Bible uh, treated the book of Ezra and Nehemiah as a single book titled Ezra. Uh, Origen, uh, who lived from 185 to 253 AD, was the earliest church father on record, key there is on record, to divide the book. And then Jerome, who translated the Christian Bible into Latin in 382, and that should be 382 AD, uh, set the trajectory for all modern translations to divide the book. So you're going to see me reference with a hyphen uh, this as Ezra and Nehemiah, and then at other times you'll hear me just refer to Ezra and Nehemiah because we need to reference it in order to get to it in our Bibles. So you, just like we've learned about so many of the other books, in fact, next week we'll see First and Second Chronicles, or actually just one book, just, just a scroll that was uh, separated, um, that a lot of, there's a lot of value in seeing these books as connected, because you start to see bigger themes played out or even repeated. So with that, the author, uh, though both books contain the memoirs of Ezra and Nehemiah, Jewish tradition holds that Ezra is the final author. Uh, Furtado, that's the, that's the gentleman that wrote this chapter, uh, which, by the way, he is a master of languages. He has a couple of books out there on, language, on the uh, particularly Hebrew language. M amazing what the man knows. Uh, Furtado agrees that Ezra is the most likely author or final author slash editor. And we talked about editor. Sometimes we see people arranging the work of other people's writings and, and bringing it into one book, and we recognize that that work itself, the editing, is also inspired by God. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Furtado agrees that Ezra is the most likely author or final author editor, given his literary skills noted in Ezra 7.6, which says that Ezra was a skillful scribe. And we know the detail that the, the scribes had to, to go through in order to uh, be a scribe and, and make sure there's no error. Um, they didn't get a chance to use whiteout or no erasers. If you got it wrong, it, and you start all over. Can you imagine doing that towards the end? Uh, okay, so uh, as it relates to date, the latest events in the book took place sometime after 433 BC. Remember BC, as the numbers get lower, that's earlier to us or closer to our time frame is a better way of thinking of it. And before the death of Artaxerxes in 423 BC, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah may have reached its final form as early as 400 BC. So we don't know the exact date that it was written. Let's talk about genre. It's pretty straightforward. The genre, uh, although it contains a number of different genres, as we see in a lot of the, the, the books, um, the, the main or primary genre is that of history. Sometimes people will refer to that as narrative history. He refers to it here as uh, uh, just history as a, as a category. Um, I was fascinated by this, and PJ, I'm going to hit you with this uh, with a question after I read this statement because it has to do with Daniel and Aramaic. 
This is one of the areas in the Bible that we see Aramaic is in the Bible. Um, so with that, uh, no, no, you can't just yell out the, the, the Sunday school answer of Jesus, no. So uh, it is interesting to note that a number of source documents, and then they are, the list of returnees in Nehemiah 7, 6 through 68, Rehum's letter and Artaxerxes' reply in Ezra 4, 7 to 22, and then Tetanai's letter and Darius's reply in Ezra 5, 6 through 17, and 6, 6 through 12, which were originally written in Aramaic, the language of diplomacy in the fifth century BC. So that would be, you would expect to see it in Aramaic when you have Persian kings writing. They would write in the, in the language of uh, diplomacy, which is the Aramaic language um, in the fifth century. Those were incorporated into the biblical text in the original Aramaic. And PJ, I know you're going through Daniel and you helped us understand that, if I've got this right, as you have shared with us, that when it stays in the Aramaic, it's more from a perspective from the, uh, those that are, uh, they're dealing with in the secular world. And when they switch back to the, uh, um, the Hebrew, that's more of a God's perspective. Is that a general way of saying it or how would you say it? I would be careful to say that about Ezra and Nehemiah just because um, I think it is a literary, it is a literary style. So I'd want to look for it because that is the pattern for Daniel, which is almost Daniel's commentary and first person perspective is in Hebrew in Daniel 1 through 2, 3, and then um, in chapter 8 through chapter 12. It's his perspective, visions, all that's going on. And yet, um, because for his style and in all these stories he's talking about himself in the third person in the narrative in between i i agree with that and yet author to author i'd want to confirm that that's what's sure. going on there and too. what i was going i just wanted to, you to confirm what that was going on in daniel because i have a hunch he didn't talk about this that it was left in the language of diplomacy but because here you have a sovereign god working through pagan leadership to accomplish what he wants accomplished. So you're reminded by staying in the Aramaic that, whoa, God can work through anyone. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be David the king. It can be one of the Persian kings. And all of a sudden, they're, they're saying decrees, yes, go back and rebuild. And by the way, I'm going to finance that. And you're going, what? So it's just an idea of God's sovereignty and a reminder. That's my take on that. Uh, I think it'd be fun, uh, PJ, to sit down and kind of knock it around and you know, see what we could come up with theological insight onto why, did, why God allowed that to stay in the Aramaic. And it could just simply be he wanted to stay in the Aramaic. I don't know. All right, let's take a look. Now let's continue on. Purpose. The Old Testament was divided into three divisions, and we've talked about the three divisions, Torah, prophets, and writings. I, I like the way he couched this, what's going on in each book. Now, well, let's follow this. So then the Torah, he has the ideals for the covenant community are set forth. He lays out. These are the ideas by which you need to live by. And he also, remember in the Torah, it gives a, a picture of if you live by him, you receive blessing. And if you don't, you receive curses. Curses meaning you receive the punishment you deserve by breaking the rules. But the, well, I think the key I got to get through here, and it's neat that we're going through the law in Exodus, the rules aren't, the, aren't a bad thing. I hope we in this community, in this country, what we're going through now, you know, I used to, uh, I, I was fascinated. People would ask me all the time. I never watched it. Did you ever watch the show Law and Order? 
And I was like, nah, I get home and I was just like, I'm done with police work. I, I really don't want to get into it again. But, you know, to each his own. There may be a lot of officers that want to uh, watch that. But the name Law and Order, now that my theology has progressed over the years, without law, you have no order. Without God's continued revelation on how things he created should work, you have chaos. And so it's just a, a beautiful picture that the, the, in, in the Torah, the Torah is giving us the people of God who have been redeemed. Remember in the Old Testament that the redemption already took place in the Exodus, and then he gives them the law. He gives them the, the totality of the law, I'll say, for the Old Testament, the Sinai uh, law. Um, we see that he's lovingly giving them instructions on how to relate and abide in a wonderful relationship of joy with him. And you're going to feel the, the, the curse or the chastisement when you step out of that lane, out as a loving parent would do with any child that steps out of the, the safety of their grace. So it's just a, I, I hope we're starting to see that law is not bad. Law is good. I, I grew up in a, in a very liberal Christian theology. I sh shouldn't say grew up. Um, after the Lord regenerated me, after two years of marriage to my wife, we went to, we were in a very, you know, in the, when I was a little boy, we were all off completely. Um, but everyone's told me the law was bad. I mean, I, talk about messing up your theology and understanding who your covenant God is. Law is not bad. Law is how we are called to live out in order to relate to our wonderful God and that with all the joy that he has available for us in that relationship. Okay, let's continue on. The prophets, the, the ideals need to be corrected. So when we see the prophets come on scene, we see that there's, not only are they foretelling, but the majority of what they are doing is that they are correcting the error that the community has taken on. The, error, the community needs rebuking, and then you have the writings, the ideals required... <clears throat> This is so like a, a parent, and we, we just got to say, thank you, Lord. The, the ideals required a second instruction in order for God's people to experience the blessing of the covenant. That's what's happening in the writings. Let's get this straight, guys. Let me remind you what God told us to do. Okay, the focus of Ezra uh, slash Nehemiah is the restoration of the temple of God and the city of God, along with the reformation of the people of God, and you'll notice I outlined all in keeping with the Torah, that is, the law of Moses or the law of Yahweh. We, when we have the, all the caps, we, we understand that that's his personal name, his covenantal name given to him, uh, that he allows the, the people, the Israelites, to know uh, in the beginning of Exodus. He identifies that name. So, again, it's all in keeping with the Torah, the value of the Torah here. All right, um, let's move on. I'm going to ask some questions. I'm going to get a little heady, and yet, so these are those, those questions that require you to, to think through, and if you're not feeling it this morning, you're kind of tired, you've, you've got jet lag, or you've just had a long week, I understand. But it would be neat to get a little popcorn conversation going on here. Um, let's see. Uh, the structure is this. There are four movements in the structure of the book. Listen carefully because I'm going to ask the question, what observations can be made about these four movements? Listen to these and look at how I've made sure to list them. Some words line up. That might be an indicator that something is, uh, there's a pattern being developed somewhere. 
The return of a group, so in the first uh, movement is the return of a group of exiles and the rebuilding of the temple of God. The second movement, the returning of Ezra, excuse me, the return of Ezra and the rebuilding of the people of God. Then you've got number three, the return of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls surrounding the city of God. And then you, lastly, you have the return of another group of exiles and the rebuilding of the people of God. So as you use your skills of observation, as we do with uh, any text we come to, to try and understand what God's doing in the text, as it relates to these four movements, what, what observations, and there are many, so please don't think I'm gonna say, oh, that's not the one I'm looking for, or you got it wrong. Um, what are some of the uh, observations that you can make? We got a tired or, or a crowd that doesn't want to quite jump out just yet. All right, we've got Jane in the back. What jumped out at me at <laughs> what jumped out at me at first <laughs> was um, the fact that for every group that returned, God had a specific purpose for their return. That's great, wonderful. I didn't catch that. I like that. It's fun to do uh, life together within a community of believers that can give different perspectives. It's great. Thanks, Jane. All right, PJ's got one up here. Uh, I, I see the model of repentance, returning, um, return, 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 um, and then also the faithfulness of God to fulfill that which you promised, which is I will bring my people back to me despite um, their infidelity. That's good. In the Old Testament, the word used for return is also the exact same word for repent. So that you can see where he's taking some Hebrew, and he knows that going into that. So there is that, that picture, that underlying theme of the return as it relates to human beings to God, not God. It doesn't go the other direction. That return is a, is a, gives you an idea of a picture of repentance, a repentant heart. He has done the work necessary in the exile, the chastising, the putting them out, so that they will now return to him and want to follow his Torah. They have repented in their hearts. They've got good hearts. Hearts ready to, to receive God, and yet we're going to see there's some problems with that as well. Any other issues there? Do you see anything, anything going on that there's two things that are the same in number two and number four of the movements? All right, we got a yeah over here. <laughs> oh, falls on the move. He's going to go. To, Gary had his uh, hand going. So what do you see, Gary? Uh, I find it interesting that uh, the Lord uh, uh, demanded that the temple and the walls be built first, and then the people uh, would be built, rebuilt second, which means, to me, the, the temple would be a rallying point for the, the exiles who built the temple, or, or, or to rebuild the temple, so they have a, a common purpose, and uh, we know from other... Uh, personal readings in Ezra that the restoration of the, the rebuilding of the people got kind of hairy at times with uh, him plucking out beards and hair and yeah. all kind of stuff. And same thing happened with uh, uh, Nehemiah, you know. And, and, and so in your so that's it. So there's so, a structure to the rebuilding, and it's God's good. structure. All right. And, and um, Paul? Carol has the, the, the answer to the final question. Um, so if you want to grab Carol up here. 
But to your point, you just identified what we have seen and we got a chance to preach through. In creation, God creates the spheres, the sky, the earth, and the, and the sea, and then he fills the spheres. And so we see a recreation work going on here. There are people that are returning that, and that theme continues into the New Testament, that God is doing a work of, we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. That theme of recreation continues through, and we see it in the exiles coming back. So, and as it relates to uh, the, the commonality, of uh, the movement number two and number four, Carol, what is that? Well, it was the people. God's re rebuilding the people of God. And, Amen. And Gary mentioned that too, so yeah. It's both an emphasis and something we need to hold our head down in, in, uh, hum in uh, humiliation a little bit, you might say, or, or humility, that it takes people two times, two shots at the people. The people need it twice. They need to deal with the, their reforming of their hearts, their dealing and building up these people to make sure they're not go astray. Looks like Rob Boy's got a, a, a point. Well, to take that theme and push it forward into heaven, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Mm -hmm. You know, my father's house has many rooms. So there's a place being prepared, like in the creation was prepared for Adam and Eve, and then they were placed in it. Heaven is being prepared for us, and then we'll be placed in it. But while the place is being prepared for us, we are being prepared for the place, sanctification. So you have the building of the place and the building of the people for the place. And in Revelation, it describes it using, um, you know, math with equal sides, and um, it gives... Uh, a symbolic view of what we should conclude is the city is going to be perfect. Hmm. So you'll have a perfect city prepared for a people who are being made perfect. And that, in the end, gets accomplished when? I'm going to let, let Rob Boy answer that. Hey, uh, Paul, give him, Rob Boy back. When does, do we finally see the perfect city and the perfect people united? Uh, when Christ returns and we are, um, we are glorified, our sanctification uh, becomes fulfilled in, our, in, in glorification. And until that point, um, we will not see that place, right? Now, we get glimpses of it. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So when a man is born again, he is able to see the glimpses, um, you know, you have an axe, the, you know, the picture of, uh, you know, and it's not normative, but, you know, seeing Christ in the right hand, but to actually have that place, Christ comes, and then all that has been, um, I was going to say all that's been promised, much that has been promised has already been fulfilled, but what remains that's promised that hasn't been fulfilled will be consummated at that time in our glorification. Amen. Until then, we wait expectantly. We see the new Jerusalem coming down in Revelation with the, and with the king setting up and filling the new Jerusalem with the wheat uh, that has been separated out. The, the, the uh, tares and the goats have been separated out. They've been judged. They're no more. And you have God setting up his kingdom here on earth, the new Jerusalem coming down, and Christ leading that for eternity. 
So it's a beautiful picture of that, and that continued continuity of recreation. I love that you pointed out that the John passage, and where I go, I, I go to prepare a place for you. That's that, that work again. He's always doing this, this work of making it possible. Here's the fear, bring the people, or bring whatever he has in, in all of creation, but for, for the storyline of the covenant people, you bring them into that which he has prepared. And I like what Rob Roy said, He's preparing us to come so that we can come in a state of, by way of sanctification, of perfection. That's not to say that we're going to be perfect on this side of eternity. He's, he ultimately does the work um, in us. He has, he has done but make us righteous, and he is making us sinless until the point where we enter into heaven sinless, if that makes sense. Okay, a little play on words, but I think we got a better picture of it so we don't get into some strange theology that says that we can attain perfection now. Go ahead, uh, Wayne, did you have a comment? Uh, no, I didn't have a comment. Okay. Uh, let's, let's look at message and theology. We've got about 20 minutes left, and this is where we're going to spend the... we got some good questions here. We'll just dig in a little bit. Um, all right. Uh, the decree of Cyrus not only sets the agenda for the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, but also contains the three major themes in the book. Now I know why you're holding the, well, actually, I thought I knew why you were holding the book, or the mic. Uh, we're going to read through, somebody read, somebody volunteer to read Ezra chapter 1. Do you want to do it, Wayne? Yeah, I thought so too. Um, I didn't realize it until after you said no, you weren't going to answer, then all of a sudden things started becoming apparent. Yeah, Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Moreover is among you all the people. May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who was in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of this place, of his place, with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers of the house of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in, of Yahweh that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus, the king who also bought out the vessels of the house of Yahweh that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods, Cyrus, king of Shabazzar, the prince of Judah, and this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 
vessels. All the vessels of gold, of silver, were 5,400. All these did Shebenezer bring up when the, with the, when the exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Okay, uh, remember in the Exodus, God destroys. He does a, a polemic argument against all of the false gods. He brings the ten plagues and destroys all of the false gods. And in the end, he destroys Pharaoh himself, who was the superpower at, at the time. So we, can, we see our God as identifying himself as the creator over all, the self-sufficient creator over all, who can do anything. Um, he, no false god, we might say fallen angel, can do anything to stop him. Well, then you switch now. Now you're dealing with a different superpower. You're dealing with Cyrus and, and the superpower of the, of the Persians. And now he is, Cyrus is his mouthpiece. And he's decreeing what God wants. It's coming through the king and the most powerful and pagan king in, in the entire world at that time. He keeps referring to the house of God or the house of Yahweh. So with that, Let's try and get a better understanding of the house of God because there's, there's a duality. There is a, what it means in its immediate context and what it means in its fuller context going along. And it's, it's progressively growing in its, its application as Ezra brings us through the book, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So let's take a look at this. Number one there, it says, the rebuilding the house of God. House was, a, was the immediate context of the temple. So it's referring, we all could get that. Oh yeah, that certainly must mean the temple. But it is also used in the broader context to include the temple, the city, and the people of God. So we have a, a, a bigger development. So it's not only meaning, it's not going to end in just meaning the temple. There is a growing meaning to it. You have to attach more, more understanding to it. And you can see this play out in, in uh, bullet point B there. Let me see if I can follow you or lead you on this. It's a little confusing. So Ezra 6.15 informs us that the temple was completed and I'm quoting now from it, on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius, the king, Darius the king, which would have been, oh, this is all you need to think about, the temple's completed in 515 BC. If the numbers in BC are, are, are higher, that means it's older. As they, in BC, as the numbers get uh, you know, lower, then it, it indicates it coming closer to what we know as AD. So then, then you have a, you got an issue, you got a problem. However, Ezra 6.14 uh, informs us that they finished their building by decree of the God of Israel. He's the number one. He just used everyone else to proclaim his decree. And by decree of Cyrus, first guy in line, Darius, and Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes, king of Persia, is key to us because um, if you understand Artaxerxes, when he ruled, he ruled from 464 to 424 BC, meaning 51 years after the actual completion of the temple. We got the temple being completed 51 years earlier, and then you got Artaxerxes, the last of the three, in line saying, yeah, it was completed at that time. So what's happening? Is there an error? Oh, there must be a contradiction in the Bible. No. They think in theological terms. Ezra is developing that understanding of the house of God to include not just the temple, but the people of God as a whole. So, uh, I, I've got written there, this is not a contradiction, excuse me, contradiction of the facts. It is a broadening, broadening of the meaning of the house of God. So the question is, 
What does this prepare our minds to have in view as it relates to Jesus's ministry in the New Testament? Think of temple. Do we have a, a physical temple that's going to remain? Or is that physical temple going to be something else? Or, or actually, there's, a, there's two places, two different entities where it's talked about the temple of God uh, in the New Testament. So anybody want to take a shot at this? I, I, I'm so glad you're here, Rob Roy. He's our, he and Rob Roy and PJ are our deep, deep thinkers. Um, and once in a while, we all just kind of look over that direction. So let's go. Let's well, do I, don't, I don't know about deep. I, I do like the shallow end of the pool. So <laughs> uh, I recommend it often, but Beaky's book on the Temple of God and the Church's mission is very uh, helpful. So, you know, my thoughts are certainly not original on it. But when we're looking at the, at the temple, we can look backward and we can look forward to get the understanding. Um, as far as the New Testament goes, Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up again, right? So when they were looking at how amazing the temple was, Jesus said, something greater than the temple is here. Of course, they confused with that. Um, even today, we have mistakes that are being made just like in John chapter 5 and 6 and 4, where there's an over-literalization over that takes place. Nicodemus was like, how do I get in my mother's womb to be born again, right? So he was literally wrong. We see that today as well. So here, if we look back to Adam, the original temple wasn't constructed uh, as we would see the tabernacle and then the brick and mortar that we see with the temple or even the rebuilding with Nehemiah and so forth. And when we get to the New Testament, Jesus is pointing them to what the real temple is. The first Adam failed in taking that garden temple and expanding it. The scripture says that God does not live in temples made with hands, but his temple that he lives in is something that he has made that man cannot make, which is creation. So Adam's mandate was to take the garden and spread it throughout all of creation. Heaven's described in Revelation, here would be another verse, chapter 21, verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The second Adam will succeed where the first Adam failed. In that, all of creation being made perfect, including the image bearers of God being made perfect, all of creation will be God's temple. And it will be made suitable by God for him to dwell with man. As it says in that, in that um, beginning of chapter 21, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear, and so on and so forth. So uh, when we're looking at these chapters in the Old Testament, 
um, these man-made temples are types and shadows that we should not invest in. When you see a shadow, you look to the thing that is the reality that's creating the shadow. That's where the substance is. And um, we, get a, we get a taste of that in these Old Testament books that we're looking at. Amen. I want to just build a little bit on that. He did a great job with uh, uh, Christ as being the temple, that the temple will be as it was originally supposed to be in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was supposed to be extended, extended outward. Christ returns to do that on earth, and so the whole earth is the Lord's temple as originally designed. But we see also in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that where the Holy Spirit dwells, the, that which the Holy Spirit created by way of us as God's image bearers, we are referred to as the temple. So you see that the beauty of that, that, that understanding, the kernel of that understanding, we see it here in Ezra and Nehemiah at, through the expansion of that understanding of what is the house of God or the house of Yahweh. So you can see the, 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 the seed in the Old Testament continuing through, or what Rob Roy was calling the shadow, but the reality we see borne out in the New Testament. And so we're so thankful for that. So, but we see the, what I wanted to point out there is the continuity in that understanding. We're gonna, we, there's a couple more continuity issues I wanna get to, and we only have about five minutes, so I'll go rather quickly. The importance of the people. Cyrus not, and so we're on the back side of the page two. Uh, um, Cyrus not only commissioned Jewish leaders and priests to return to rebuild the house of God, he included ordinary people. The lists of people are mostly filled with ordinary people in those lists. Some of the people that even say, but there's no record of them being Levites or, or Levites. They, they say they're Levites, but we can't find the records to prove it, so they can't be Levites. We want to make sure we, we, we do this right, basically. But, but the, the key that I want to focus in on is that they're ordinary people that God makes sure that their names are listed in here so that we can see that, the, that this Old Testament uh, return um, is, is something that includes the whole church. So how does this line up with the New Testament and the role of ordinary people? And, uh, and I would say ordinary people in relationship to their leadership. You can see the Ephesians 11, 4, 11, and 13 passage that we got going there. Does anyone want to read that out loud? Uh, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. All right, we got, uh, looks like, uh, PJ, it looks like he's going to give it to Stephen. Um, so go ahead and read that now. Stephen, while you're reading that, I hope you guys are listening. We're going to see it occur in the Old Testament. Right here, we're seeing it in Ezra and Nehemiah, and now we're seeing it fulfilled in the New Testament. So we have a continuity of that. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So you have the leadership and the people involved in, the, in, in doing, in the, how do I put this, in the uh, rebuilding of the, the temple of God. But the temple of God is not just a physical structure. It's the totality of the people of God where the church meets is, are the peop is the church. So we're in a gymnasium. We didn't have to go to a building where it said Redeemer Reformed Baptist Church on the outside of it. 
It actually says Milestones Charter School. But this, we're, this is church because it's filled with the people of God coming to worship the, uh, the God of creation on his day that he has assigned. So with that, um, we can see that there's a, there's a, a consistency, a continuity. So let's, I, I'm, I'm not going to go any further on that. Um, I'm going to, uh, I want to get to this last question, so I'm going to j- uh, jump into this little last portion. The primacy of the written word of God. Soon after the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, God's people entered into 400 years of silence. And I've got to tell you real quick here, I didn't know this fact. I, again, I read the book already. I've taken the class already. I've always struggled with the 400 years of silence. What are you doing, God? And this really helped me with this. God's people entered into 400 years of silence, and there was no prophetic word from God but only the written word to guide and govern them as they continued rebuilding God's house, the people of God. Question, what is the significance of this chronological and theological pattern of the primacy of the written word, of, uh, uh, written word for the church, the house of God today? Let me, I'll, I'll ask it this way. Do we have any more prophetic um, revealings by God. Are there any new prophets? No. We have a closed canon, just like they had a closed canon at the time of the Old Testament. And then we have the making of the New Testament. We can't, when people pop up and say, oh, God said, you know, God came to me and told me this. Think of Mormonism or any other of the the crazy stuff out there. We even see it, unfortunately, in what sometimes is called Orthodox Christianity. And we have to look at that and go, Wow, you are really getting into an area that suggests blasphemy. You've got to be very careful. You, you, and sometimes it's out of ignorance that people will say that, their upbringing. So certainly that's one component. But how does that, what does that do if there are no new prophets and all has been written that needs to be written until the, coming of, the second coming of Christ? What does that do for us since we have a canon that is closed. There's no more writings to it. What does that do to us as far as the value of the written or the primacy of the written word? It raises it. That's a good one. It also shows that, as it states, it's sufficient. What does 1 Timothy 3.16 talk about? What's that? What's that? And she needs a mic. Dude, can you grab her the mic? Uh, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for um, <laughs> for teaching for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped uh, for every good work competent and equipped for every good work thank you and I set you up at 2 Timothy yeah. my bad um the point, though, I wanted you to hear, when he says that, it's, it is all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. That's knowing what's right. That's the law. For rebuke, that's knowing what is wrong. For correction, that is knowing how to get right. And for the training in righteousness, so we can stay on that path as the covenant people of God. What we saw with the law what we saw in the goodness and the primacy of the scriptures that was sufficient for them to continue as a people of God in, the, in the, that 400-year t- time span, it is enough, it was sufficient to, ki- to get these people back on the right path as a covenant community, is still, and we have 2,000 years 
of silence since Christ has left, and yet he has given us the full primacy, the full sufficiency of his word. And we've got to remember that. We've got to realize. We've got to go to it. And the last question I don't have time for, so I'm just going to read it, and I'm going to answer it for you. How do, how do Nehemiah's actions in the final chapter of the book, chapter 13, against the Jewish officials and the ordinary people who were forsaking the house of God prefigure the New Testament? I have had come, there's a couple of commentaries I like, but once you, you never put all your weight into one human being, or you're going to get into, you're, somewhere the theology is not going to work out, we are fallen creatures. It makes a statement about your pastor, that means you should, you should listen carefully to how any one of us preach and what we preach. The point here is, I've had commentaries say that, oh, that last chapter, that was a miss. The last chapter 13 was a miss. Nehemiah kind of went crazy, and he's just doing anything. I didn't see God command any of those things that happened. And that's not true. What's happening here is Nehemiah is foreshadowing what Christ will do when he puts out those that want to start and to corrupt what his message is, corrupt the gospel, corrupt the truth of what he must do. They've got it in an institution where this, the, the temple gives them power. The temple gives them a sense of salvation because they have this piece of furniture or this building that they're in close proximity to. They can do this or that and somehow they're saved. And so he comes and he just absolutely does what he has to do to right the understanding. And we see that when he, I mean, we can, you can see that when he enters the temple and he overturns the tables and he stop. And some of the same things that they're doing there, we see in, in Nehemiah. He's upset because on the Sabbath day, they're buying and selling. There's trade in the temple. What does Christ do? And they're overturning the tables. I mean, it's the prefiguring. Of it. We're going to see that there is going to be a portion of, the, of, the, of people that so warp the church that it's not recognizable to the Savior. And we've got to be careful that we never get to that place where we, for one thing, we take the law and we make it grace. We are saved by grace, and out of that, the covenant community shows its, its gratitude and wants to live by the law because it's what God has given to show that this is how you relate to me. And, we, and the other thing is we don't want to start to incorporate things that, which the Pharisees were known for, that were just add-ons. Just tack this on, tack this on, tack this on, and then pretty soon it's no longer the original thing it was designed to be. Let's go to the Lord in, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for this book. We thank you for the understanding of Ezra and Nehemiah. We thank you for how you are a God that is, that there's so much continuity in your, and, and consistency and, 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 um, and seeing these, these lesser forms, these types, these shadows be fulfilled as antitypes and, and the actual substance of that which you have always been pointing to, the incredible work and person of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we could understand this a little bit better this morning by the power and work of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.